0: welcome to cup of tea with the vet this is a fortnightly show pre-recorded live on social media i started the show to help owners fall back in love with their vets and learn more about them as humans we learn all about the vets lives on this show and it's really fun and interesting enjoy the show
1: uh i have a glass <laughs> lovely yeah.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Cup of Tea with a Vet. And I am here with Chris Furley from Henley Mobile Veterinary Service. Um, So he wasn't able to join us uh, when we tried to do it two weeks ago, because he had a family emergency. Um, But he has very kindly managed to join us tonight. And I'm absolutely thrilled. So Chris, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Uh, Well, I run the Henley Mobile Veterinary Service in Henley on Thames. Um, I've been doing that for I think this is year five now. We started in May 2016. Um, We were probably the first uh, mobile veterinary service here in this part of the Southeast. I think the only other one from memory was one in London and and there was one in the Isle of Wight. Um, But now there are are quite a number about. Um, But I figured that there was probably a niche for um, a service that visited pets at home. Um, because I think, first of all, it's less stressful for the pets themselves, certainly less, a lot less stressful for the owners. Um, and my career is such that I'm, I've always been used to taking the treatment to the animal rather than the other way around. So I'm quite used to cutting fairly substantial bits of equipment around the countryside, um, in order to, um, you know, diagnose and treat animals. and also, a lot of animals get terrified when they go to a veterinary clinic, their behavior changes entirely. And um, so it's, they feel much more secure and safe um, if you visit them at home. And you know, by and large, I would say that probably about 80% of my patients don't actually really realize who I am or what I do. They, just, really. they just think I'm a casual visitor coming in, I might pay them a bit more attention than the you know, than the plumber, uh, (laughs) looking into their ears and up their nose or whatever. But other than that, you know, these armless guy. Uh, And um, that's the way I like to keep it. So it works well in that respect
0: that's really fantastic it's really nice to see you found a way that works for you as well um and you know and you can really enjoy your work and uh, as you say there's it definitely seems to be an awful lot more um mobile veterinary going on at the moment it's quite interesting really because actually 2016 wasn't that long ago so that's quite an explosion in a relatively short amount of time so um I uh, oh, just want to also say, hi, Barbara, because Barbara's watching from Switzerland. We're very global now. Um, <laughs> so uh, tell us more about your past, because you sent me your bio, and I have to say it was very incredible. Um, you know, tell me a bit more about, you know, what you, what's made you get to this stage? I mean, Singapore vet, um, yeah, zoo vet, that's amazing.
1: Okay, well, um, I'm, I spent my childhood in East Africa. I was very lucky. Um, So I grew up the first 17 years of my life in the tropics, um, both in East Africa um, and in a short period in Jamaica and the Caribbean. Um, but as a child, you know, my childhood memories are, are places like the Serengeti and the rainforest and Semliki and places like that. Wow. When I came to this country when I was a teenager and um, went to school here, I realized that the other boys at the school spoke English because I could recognize some of the words, but I had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. It was a cultural gap that just took years to cover. I'd never heard of the Beatles. I'd never heard of Manchester United. I hadn't got a clue what they were on about the British culture. Not a clue. So it was very different. And when I was at school, obviously, we were studying to go to university, and I I never really wanted to be a vet in the first place at all. What I really wanted to do was be a zoologist. Um, And when the time came to applying for university, um, in those days, you had what's called an ucker form. And I wanted to do zoology, which is on page 11, or whatever it was. So I turned to zoology, and, and there was a list of all the universities that offered zoology courses, and there were I think from memory, 62 universities offering zoology degrees. So I realized immediately that there was no chance of a job afterwards. You've got 62 universities churning out 200 graduates a year, chance of finding a job was zero. Wow. That's so my I sort of wandered further up to the page, to the letter V where it came across <laughs> veterinary medicine. And so I ticked the box for veterinary medicine and, and much to my surprise, Got in. I had no idea what what you actually did as veterinary medicine or what it was all about, but it seemed a good idea at the time, you know.
0: How fortunate that V and Z were so close to each other.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's amazing, and um, what a history! So, when did you become fluent in English? Even I mean, that's incredible.
1: Well, uh, no, I was fluent in English as a child. My, my first language was Swahili. Um, but my i was fluent in english my parents spoke english at home my mother's a linguist so she ah. taught me a lot of uh, different languages but um, the y- y- english as she is spoke as someone called it um, i could you know master like any other child i was you know at the same level as everybody else it's just that the subject matter of the conversation was completely different uh, mm-hmm. and i had no idea what these other boys were talking about um, and it was extraordinary. Um, but, uh, you know, we have a long history in our family of living overseas. My sister works with refugees for the UN in, in various countries around the world. Wow. And you know, my daughter teaches climate change in Kuwait. And, um, so we, we have quite a long history of sort of mixing with cultures, which I think gives you a good perspective, um, when I graduated, my first job was actually in Germany, funnily enough. Wow. Um, And I was there for about 10 minutes and realized that I did actually have to speak German. (laughs) So um, it would be helpful to communicate, you know. So I did five hours of German a day for four months two and a half hours in the morning before breakfast and two and a half hours in the evening. And you use the same technique that Sir Richard Burton used to you to learn his language. He figured that you could become fluent in a language and working fluency with 3000 words. And if you learned 3000 words, verbs, nouns, adjectives and got the pronunciation right, then you could get across what it was that you needed. So, so So if you take that approach, that's actually quite a good way of, of, Making yourself understood. Um, That that put
0: me. As I say, that puts me to shame. I love Germany and I did my GCSE German. I was quite proud of it. Um, And um, 20 years later, I went to Germany and I was actually quite shocked how much I could remember having not spoken it in 20 Mm -hmm. years. Um, But it stimulated me to go and start learning again. And, uh, you know, thanks for technology. We have Duolingo um, and I do my daily lesson. (laughs) But it's only about sort of Mm. between 10 minutes you know, each maybe... language
1: has its own idiosyncrasies. I mean, you can say things in English that you can't really say in other languages, but you can definitely say things in German that you can't say in other languages. <laughs> Arabic, you know, Arabic has a whole range of different sort of nuances that you can't really translate.
0: Wow, that's um, so interesting. So, so um
1: hmm.
0: so when did you end up in Singapore as the zoo vet there then? When did that
1: happen? Oh, that was quite recently. Um that was about two thousand and four um i went there because i was um i worked at howlinson port Limon in kent for a long while and then i went to singapore and um worked there as the, as the head vet at singapore zoo which is a big collection of four and a half thousand animals wow um, with yeah we had a staff of i think the veterinary staff from memory was about 11 um, and then i was also around the zoology department which is 160 people. Um, so it's fairly time consuming. But Uh, you got
0: back to your zoology roots.
1: Yeah, we did. Yeah, Um, (laughs) that's true. And we did a lot of, we funded a lot of conservation projects and it was good fun. I mean, working with animals that you don't normally come across at all. Um, a lot of quite rare primates over there, a lot of snakes. Um, and we used to get snakes brought in every week by the police. Uh, python's would wind up in people's kitchens, and they called the police to come and catch them, and then they used to take them to the zoo. So we had a huge collection of pythons. Um,
0: you couldn't imagine, um, as a policeman over here, being rang up. I've got a, I've got a snake. Can you come and get it? And they actually saying yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, that they have, they amazing. have a snake department.
0: Um, <clears throat> wow.
1: Yeah, with special tongs and nets and stuff, and so that's quite useful. If anyone's
0: a policeman watching, can you please comment and let us know if you would actually deal with a snake if you were called in? Because I want to know how far your police dedication Mm -hmm. would go if you were asked to be a policeman and you had to Mm -hmm. handle the snakes. That's amazing. Wow. So what brought you back here?
1: Well, I worked in, uh, after I left Singapore, I went to Thailand and set up my own consultancy uh, working with um, uh, wildlife management programs over there. Um, and then I was part of a group here that <clears throat> um, were uh, involved in uh, property transactions. And I had a phone call one day to say that the, one of the members of the group had fallen ill and would I come back to the UK and help. So that's really why I came back to the UK. Um, and that was just at the beginning of, of the sort of credit crunch in this country. Yeah. So, so nobody had any transactions going through the banks at all. And so that's when I sort of switched careers from being a zoo and wildlife vet to a small animal vet because I, medicine's not sort of subject that you can give up and then go back to after a year. You you have to keep practicing on a weekly basis.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, sort of simple things like intravenous cannulas and think that all those skills you lose if you don't practice them. Yeah. So I I worked at a locum in about thirty-five practices, um, up and down the country um and some of them were very good and some of them are not so good but that showed me you know the, the reasons why I set up the mobile service were valid because I could see a lot of animals were terrified of coming in I could see that clients were frustrated that they every time they took went to the vet they saw a different person that's the biggest complaint I get now yeah never see the same person twice yeah Um, and they get incredibly frustrated if they they see somebody on Monday and they're told to call on Thursday and they call on Thursday and they're told, oh, that that vet is off duty till next week, you know, just a wall. Um, Whereas I do everything myself. So the the only person they get is me and if they don't like me, they move on and if they like me, they stay. So um, that's the way it works and I get to know the clients and I get to know the animals and, you know, we have a wide range of, Different clientele. We're we're within commuting distance from London here. Yeah. So before the lockdown, um, I would say probably one and a half thousand people commuted every day into London from Henley. Yeah. Um, And now that's gone down to probably about two hundred, something like that. Um, So there's a fair sprinkling of of people who used to commute a lot. And people who, who actually used to live and work in Paris and, and then come home on the Eurostar and spend the weekend in Henley. Wow. Uh, mm. So, a different, you know, very, very clientele from people living in a bed sit on benefits right up to some very wealthy individuals, indeed, actually.
0: I was going to say also that that must gel well with your traveling instinct because you can all talk about your travels because you've mm. got lots of people with lots of itchy feet. <laughs>
1: Yeah, some of my staff are British Airways pilots um, and staff, and others are, you know, working in the oil industry and and international agricultural projects, things like that. So there's, there's a fair sprinkling of. Of uh, of travellers, as I call them, yeah, in this area, I'm sure there are all over the place, but in particular this area we seem to, because we're relatively close to Heathrow, you see.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um,
1: so within hopping distance of you know 25 minutes away, terminal three and four and five, so it's quite easy to get to.
0: Lovely. Right, I want to get on to some of these uh, comments because we've got some lovely comments from our wonderful audience. Um, So Barbara, who's our Switzerland lady, um, she's a physio that I've talked to before. She's lovely. Um, She says, my experience with the mobile vet is also very good. Thank you. That's great. Um, Especially for the last moment in their life of the beloved pet. It was very helpful for the owner and the animal and the veterinarian comes home. It makes the last step a little easier. I have to say I completely agree um, yeah, I think you you know that's one of the the moments you've always traditionally wanted the vet to come out really anyway, isn't it that's you know the one time that you yeah should... it means a lot
1: to people and when I was in practice I I realized that the actual process the procedure that we use traditionally for putting animals to sleep in in the modern way, inverted commas, is actually also quite stressful for the pet. Yeah. Um, you know, the hell, the vein is raised and the leg is shaved and it's all, you know. Um, so that that's something which I sort of found rather distasteful and perhaps could be done in a more elegant manner, to be honest.
0: That's a nice description of it, actually. <laughs> so yeah uh, yeah absolutely so we've got some got some more jane lovering has come on and said i used to be an education officer in a safari park and we used to have snakes and exotic spiders brought in by the local police officer for identification oh wow that's interesting that was one brave policeman but that is interesting to know that that same same thing does go on across the pond and in the uk too and joanne oh you're gonna love this she says we like you, and she's giving you a hug.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. Hi, Joanne. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much, for jo- Joanne, for saying that. That's really lovely. And Jane Telford has said, I have three rescues from Cyprus, which have come with many issues, and deaf agree. Seeing the same person makes a massive difference. Mm. Well said. And it's great. You're sh- thank you for sharing your um, experience, Jane. And, yeah, Jane has also said a mobile vet um, would be amazing and yeah I mean absolutely I, at the end of the day we all say exactly the same about our local GPs don't we you know in the old days you always had your same doctor who you knew and you saw all the time and you know those things have changed now so it, it is a really really yeah good point you can't change that <laughs> so yeah it's lovely seeing the same person and getting to have a great relationship with them and Joanne has also said Chris recently carried out an operation on our dog Milo uh, using his outdoor pod no stress of leaving the vets oh wonderful you have an outdoor pod
1: yeah we since the lockdown began we we do all our um surgery and dental procedures um either um outdoors if the weather's sort of conducive to that um or we have a little outdoor pod which is a transparent pop-up tent that we can use then we can you know wipe down the inside and sterilize it bring all our in table and sterile equipment and everything like that. Um, this means that, given the COVID restrictions, we don't share the same airspace as the owner, um, and the dog is handed over at the at the door to the pod. So um, you know we follow the social distancing guidelines, um, and it does work quite well. Um, the only slight disadvantage we discovered that if there's a strong breeze, it tends to blow away. So, <laughs> so we've had to. To use some sandbags to tie it down from from time to time but i mean that's a minor point but it it is a good system it does work well and Fantastic. I like it it gives us quite room it's 12 foot in diameter so we've got plenty of room to move about it means we don't have to you know share the house with other people while we're doing anything like that um so and we do a lot of dental scale and polish and and um cleaning out ears that can't be you know, cleaned out when the animal is conscious and and removing sort of skin tumours and things like that. Yeah.
0: Oh, well done, that's amazing. See, lots of different ways of doing these things. That's absolutely amazing. So Jane has also asked, and this is probably a question more for me, is there a mobile canine physio? Yes, of course there is, Jane, absolutely. Um, So yes, you just need to give your physios a call and find out, you know, how they work and where they work and, um then you'll be able to um work out uh, the system that that works for you both basically because um yes most well there are a lot of mobile physios but um there are also some that are also in one place but they're, like me I work um, in my main location, but then I also go out on home visits for certain cases as well. So, um, it's a case of mix and match. So have a conversation and find out what your needs are, but yes, don't think that it's ruled out at all. So that's wonderful. And Jane has also asked, do you do a nutrition consultations?
1: Um, up to a point. Um, I, I'm actually a firm believer in mother nature and, um, I, I view that the way that we manage and treat some animals as um, sort of going against nature rather than with it, um, I think you get a better results if you work with with nature rather than against it. So um, I, I'm in favor of what I would call sensible feeding. Um, part of the problem we have in domestic dogs is that they have evolved um so differently from their ancestors over the past hundreds of thousands of years that their digestive system is also slightly different they can digest small amounts of carbohydrate which canines you know wild canines cannot um the other difference is of course that we feed them what is effectively processed food um you know wolves in alaska don't eat their food out of a packet or a tin uh they eat the whole animal but the vitamins and minerals that don't exist in in meat per se do actually exist in some of the internal organs, but also in the the vegetable matter in the intestines of the animal that they prey on. So that's how they pick up um, minerals and vitamins, which are not present in a strictly carnivorous diet because they eat the whole animal. We tend to forget that. Yeah. So um, I'm a strong proponent of raw food. Um, feeding, I think that's, um, I've seen a number of cases where animals in particular with sort of food intolerance and, and skin disease, hypersensitivity, things like that have just blossomed on, on, on raw food It's done really well. Um, there are a number of raw food manufacturers around, I think there's probably about 16 or 20 now, um, and they do well. And I mean, the establishment doesn't like them of course, because they're in competition with the, with the big guys, um, but hey, you know, Microsoft didn't like Apple when they started, and where <laughs> Apple is now. So, um, so I, I think that if you feed your dog sensibly, then um, you shouldn't go wrong. But I, I'm not a nutritionist, um, but with a little bit of common sense and logic, which seem to be to the qualities least prevalent in the world today, as far as I could see, <laughs> um, it should be possible to you know look after a dog healthily without too much um trouble
0: i think at the end of the day as well it, it's um it's a very broad question isn't it uh, like do you do nutrition consults because it depends on what your needs are isn't it so you know if you have like a specific issue that really needs fixing then you probably do need a you know, well-qualified nutritional advisor but it's a everyday joe you know puppy nutrition or you know weight loss clinic or something like that yeah and that's you, right you know,
1: but the you know in in, um, in some parts where I worked in Germany for a while and there are a lot of husky dog owners over there um, and Samoyeds and all these Arctic breeds and they all eat fish. Oh. Uh, that's, what that's what they're bred to, to survive on. And, you know, huskies in Greenland have fed dried cod pretty much their entire lives um, wow. or seal meat. And, and that is literally what they survive on. Um, so when you bring a husky down to Oxfordshire um and start feeding it you know kibble or twin dog food or something you might want to ask well should we really, really should we really be you know feeding it fish as well and to some degree
0: interesting uh, isn't it lots of thoughts hmm. definitely definitely thank you jane that was an um, amazing question and she's also um said uh one of my cypress dogs has a dermatologist so would be interested so be interested in nutrition hmm. ah so um yeah, skin and, skin and nutrition links, yes, that's, yeah. a, that's another big conversation, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, the dermatologist would probably be you know, fairly good and skilled at giving, you know, good advice on that front. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, um, there would be a lot of information there.
0: Awesome. And Joanne says, we th- we feed our three dogs on a raw diet and are very healthy. Well, that's wonderful mm-hmm. to know, Joanne. Well done. Thank you for saying so i you've you've answered loads of my questions but um so what do you like to do in your spare time what what keeps you ticking in between your vetting
1: Um, (laughs) well in my spare time i i have a big book collection i collect books um on natural history and exploration which i've collected since i was probably about 14 15. um so um, they're mainly re- revolving around the tropics, wildlife in the tropics. Um, so that gives me a lot of pleasure. It annoys the hell out of my partner. Cause we've got cardboard boxes full of books everywhere in the house, <laughs> um, and in the attic and everywhere. I mean, you can see some of them behind me. So <clears throat> that's one of my sort of main passions is, is books and wildlife collecting. Not wildlife, a books man. On wildlife. Yeah. Sorry, not a
0: Kindle man.
1: No, no, there's no, you can't put a value on Kindle. No, I mean, uh, I have a Kindle, but I I rarely use it. But the book itself is is much more um, precious in my view.
0: I completely agree. It's exactly the same in our house. We have a Kindle and it literally is hardly ever used. My husband was determined to have a Kindle, but it never actually really made it out of the box, um, <laughs> which is a shame. And then the other thing as well is if you are reading like, veterinary stuff or just research papers or whatever like y- you can't highlight it i mean i know you say i know you can highlight it but it's not the same as like just putting a line through it and then just mm. feeling your way back like you used to do when you have to do your english studies or whatever at school it's yeah it's quite bizarre and actually i came across my um oh what was it lord of the flies book there's mm-hmm. an old book um, from when I was studying at school. And, it, and uh, you know, I, I know I can't believe I still have that book, but I think it's just my nostalgia. And I was looking through it and I was like, all these highlights and all these notes about what everything means. And you're like, yeah, you can't do that on a Kindle. <laughs> so... No. That was amazing. Oh, that's really lovely, though. And uh, yeah, you you're very drawn to your top tropical side. I'm really surprised that you are residing in the UK, if I'm honest, because I just think it must be freezing for you at the moment. You must be like,
1: Where's yeah, the it's, not, it's not particularly yeah um, pleasant at the moment. Of course, in the lockdown, I tend to see everybody outside. Um, I mean, two weeks ago, it was minus two. So that was a bit tricky. Um, and but you know hopefully we'll get a decent spring and summer when life will be a bit more enjoyable and and um yeah i i think if britain generally was about 10 degrees warmer it would be much more conducive place to sort of live and develop a career really
0: (laughs) i i agree except from the fact that we'll probably be there with global warming (laughs) give it time (laughs) Mm. um shouldn't laugh really that's terrible um so you've obviously said about what made you be a vet, and that's just because it was v in the uh, alphabetical order, so that was that was nice to learn. And what's your favorite part about being a vet? What have you decided actually you do like it for?
1: Um, oof. Well, I think when I left Germany, I worked in in the desert for six years um, in in Abu Dhabi emirate, but we were in the empty quarter and um we were able, everything there was new. I mean, we had new diseases, or we had diseases that had been recorded, but only in domestic animals and we had them in the wild. So finding new things like that to me was very exciting. Um, yeah. And so we were the first <clears throat> people to record uh, um, you know, rinderpest in a number of species. Um, we' were the first people to record avian pox in in golden eagles. Um, and there were a lot of of diseases which are familiar. Because in those days, in the um, in the sort of late 70s and 80s, there were no restrictions on import and export of animals in in the UAE. You know, if you wanted to bring in a panda with rabies, no one was going to stop you. Um, now, of course, it's tightened up a bit, but um, the importation of animals for for the Sheikh's collections in those days used to be massive, and these animals would come from places like Egypt and Sudan and Somalia where there were no regulations at all and all the animal dealers were interested in was profit and we used to get phone calls and go along to the airport to pick up a shipment of animals and half of them would be dead.
0: Oh God, that must um, be awful.
1: And, um, and I remember one shipment of something like 12 ostriches and only two of them were alive and all come from Sudan. And you wonder, you know, if 12 ostriches left Sudan alive, how many died before the plane left the ground, you know?
0: Oh, God, how awful.
1: That, that sort of thing really got to me. But um, I think the fact that we were in a relatively new field, finding new animals and finding new diseases in 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 animals, to me, that was the exciting part. And I've always been interested in infectious disease. And, and before I went to Singapore, I published um, a medical journal. I had a publishing company. And we published a medical journal called the Infectious Disease Review. And it was the only journal in the world that, that published veterinary articles and medical articles and articles about infection in the environment. Um, we brought everything together and we most of our subscribers were hospital libraries um, and some of the big research centers um, like Axo Noble in Sweden and Smithsonian in Washington and people like that. And we had one, issue I remember on tuberculosis in the Arctic. And there was a medical researcher who wrote about TB in in the Inuit. In Canada, we had someone else write about TB in whales and seals and walrus. Mm -hmm. Someone else wrote about avian TB in Arctic birds. Um, And you know, the whole thing brought um, a much bigger sort of spectrum of infectious disease in a given part of the world to the audience. And I think the medical profession because they knew nothing about animals at all. Um, mm. They were you know, massively surprised that, you know, all that amount of work had been done, you know. So, you
0: must, as I say, you must have had your mind blown over COVID, because you must have been like, oh, I understand all this.
1: <laughs> well, when it first, I mean, I wasn't the least bit surprised. I mean, I worked in Asia for a long while, and I, you know, worked in China and Indonesia, and, and coronaviruses are carried by bats and other creatures, but... Coronaviruses, per se, as a group, only survive really in in, um, in populations numbering in the hundreds of thousands or millions. So, you know, bats living roosts of half a million individuals upwards. Um, wow. So it wasn't a surprise that, you know, that had crossed over to the human population um, <clears throat> somewhere in southeast China, we imagine. So we believe. And, uh, you know, the human is an aberrant host. We're going to have to live with it now for forever. Um, yeah. There'll be a mutations, some of which vaccines will be protective against, and and some probably be more problematical. Uh, and there'll mm-hmm. be other viruses as well cropping up. Um, you know, with every day that passes, the human population increases and the amount of habitat for wildlife decreases. So the interaction between wildlife and humans is being increases every day so we're bound to get more episodes like this in the future I'm quite confident about that unfortunately
0: yeah so sad we need more rewilding don't we that's one of my big things well we need
1: what we need is somewhere to put animals into i mean we you know zoos breed hundreds of thousands of animals a year successfully um and the ultimate the aim of every zoo is, is to be able to return their animals to the wild. I mean, that, that's that's lovely, but very few zoos actually do that. And part of the reason is finance and funding and expertise. But the other reason is that very often there's nowhere to put them, Yeah, which is safe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you return elephants to Nigeria, you know, within five years, they'll all be dead. Um, so it, the protective areas, need to be much, much more stringently managed. And that includes veterinary work too. I mean, you know, in Africa, there are a lot of field vets and in South America um, who work with wildlife and are producing a a much bigger picture of some of the diseases which are prevalent in wildlife. You know, we have avian malaria, for example, in penguins in the Antarctic. That's a major problem. Wow. Um, And the aspergillosis is a problem in, um, in penguins. Um, I'll tell you a funny story about penguins. When I worked in Abu Dhabi, we had at the zoo there we had a big aquarium, and we had a group of Humboldt penguins, and one of them died with aspergillosis of the lungs, which is a fungal disease. Oh yeah. And then we had another penguin which sort of didn't look very well, so I used to take some of my animals from the zoo to the local hospital, which is American staffed. And um, so it was all very highly qualified, and the guy in charge of the X-ray department was actually Scottish, Chris Austin. And I used to take falcons there and tiger cubs and things like that. And he always used to ask me to come at six o'clock in the evening, and knock on the back door when all the other sort of human patients had gone, and he and his staff would would help me. And one day I used to call him. I called him up and I said, Look, I've got a penguin to bring in and a falcon at six o'clock. Does that be okay?" He said, "Yeah, fine." So when we got round to actually catching this penguin at five o'clock we couldn't catch it this thing shot like a bullet through the water and there's no way that we could catch this thing so i thought we'll, mm-hmm. we'll leave the penguin we'll just take the falcon so we arrived at the hospital and knocked on the back door at six o'clock with one falcon and chris austin himself opened the door and he looked at me and he said where's the penguin i said we couldn't catch it he went white as a sheet i said what's the problem and he said, I've, "I've bet half the hospital staff ten pounds each that there'll be a penguin in the X-ray department at six o'clock." <laughs> <laughs> so he lost like six hundred pounds or something on a bet that went wrong, you know, because nobody believed him. So they all took him up on his bet. So I felt oh, really bad no about way. that. Yeah, I felt bad oh, about no. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll
0: teach you, gambling yeah, is yeah. off. <laughs> Oh bless. Well, I'm just going to pop um Barbara's comment on here as well because Barbara has said um how she, totally good point. How do you see it? I always worry when customers fly with their dogs. All of the all of these many d- diseases, heartworm and more, we never go abroad with the dog. Yeah, that's obviously touching back on when you were saying about the the ostrich arriving, obviously. Well,
1: well, yeah, I mean the regulations for um, for traveling animals and transporting animals by air now are extremely strict. And um, if your crate and your paperwork doesn't match the regulations, then, you know, the animal doesn't fly. It's very simple. Um, the health requirements on either side of, you know, departure and destination are usually fairly strict as well. I mean, in the last 20 years, we've seen huge advances in in trying to control the spread of infectious disease. Mm. Um, there is an issue with um, rescue dogs coming from places like Romania and Bulgaria, Turkey, places like that, um, where they are exposed to some diseases which we don't have in this country. Um, and so making sure that these animals are clear of those diseases before they arrive here is, you know, pretty important. Mm. Um, but the rescue centers out there, you know, they do a good job. and and. You know, most of the veterinary officials are pretty skilled and knowledgeable. And, you know, they're, certainly from the paperwork I've seen, they've always been, you know, very efficient. So, but there's always that risk that um, if you take your dog abroad, it might pick up something. It might get bitten by a tick or something and carry a blood parasite that you know nothing about. And, you know, that, that's part of life. But having said that, when a human goes abroad, I mean, we could go to Greece on holiday and pick up something that we didn't expect and bring it back to this country. It's just the same for us.
0: That's true. You just don't think about it, do you? Yeah, yeah. That's a point. That's a good point. But yeah, it's a lot to think about when you're travelling your dog abroad. And uh, yeah, it's not an easy, not an easy task. I know that doing the vet passports was uh, always a bad thing when I was a nurse, and uh, as in, you know, everybody hated it. And I think my understanding is that that's only got worse. <laughs> so. Um, Yeah, that's not not easy. So um, tell me a bit more about your team. So you know, do you have any help that you um, have work with you? Or are you literally a one man band? And that's it?
1: Um, I'm pretty much a one man band. I answer the I have um, a I use the services of a company that answers the phone. um, And they will contact me by email. So I, I get emails every day saying, you know, Mrs. Thompson called at four o'clock, here's a number, can you please call back about so and so. But that's pretty much what they do. That's all they do. They don't um, speak to me very much. Um, But I call the clients, I make the appointments, I go and visit them. Um, I dispense all the medication, I order all the medication, dispense it, do all the invoicing, chase it all up, send out all the paperwork that needs to be sent anywhere. Um, And initially, when we began we didn't have any clients at all, um, so there was no work whatsoever. And now we've got several hundred clients, and the average. Day, I mean, yesterday was an average day where we probably began at seven thirty and finished maybe about ten fifteen. Wow! So, so You're today
0: so, hmm, Yeah. Wow! Well done, you managing. I mean, you are literally, as they say, chief, chief, chief. Chief bottle washer, washer, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I, well,
1: have, I have, I have um, three um, sort of part time staff who help me with dental procedures and things like that. Um, they're not nurses per se, but they've one of them is a dog walker, so she's handled dogs all her life. Um, the other one's a cat sitter, looks after people's cats when they're away on holiday. So, as you can imagine at the moment, she hasn't got much to do. Mm. Um, but these are people who are used to handling animals and sometimes quite uh fractious animals um, and then i also have someone who helps me who's an airline pilot with ba oh wow um so we between the three i think there's four of them actually um so depending on the type of animal that we're um' we're dealing with i mean they're all pretty well trained in their own sort of field now and quite skilled at it so you know we're yeah. super super careful that about what they do and essentially they don't actually really handle the animals at all to be honest i do all of that but they help sort of put things on the table and set up the equipment and stuff like that
0: on the job learning always helpful (laughs) so i obviously i always like to ask what do you love about physio
1: well physio i think is um is probably the forgotten skill because I, i think that particularly animals recovering from surgery um, where they've had surgery on a, on a limb or, a, or the backbone or something like that, um, very often <clears throat> will suffer from muscle atrophy. And, and you know, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Yep. Um, and I've seen a number of cases where, you know, animals have been off and had the most amazing bits of complex surgery and it's all terribly wonderful and they come home. But, you know, four months later, they're still lame because they haven't been told how to use that limb Properly and they're still sort of hopping about. Um, yep. So I think physio is probably, certainly in the experience I've had, um, it's been useful helping animals recuperate. But it's also actually quite useful for animals that have arthritis. Uh, animals which have never had surgery but have arthritis and are in pain. Um, it's useful to have physio to try and just generally ease that tense musculature um, down the spine and around the hip area and so on. And that helps just to make life more comfortable for them. And I do actually tell my clients sometimes to, to do that. Um, and so I have I had one family with a dog that was sort of very stiff and and they had eight people in the family. So I, I drew up a rote and I put all of them on duty for half an hour starting at 7:30 in the morning. Well wow. they, they all they all had to take the dog for a five-minute walk and do a bit of rehab and so on for about a week. And at the end of the week, you know, the dog had recovered, you know considerably wasn't totally fantastic 100 Uh, vastly improved yeah
0: well thank you I could not have said it better myself you've touched all the points in my view I mean that's exactly it and I'm thrilled to hear that you have had a situation where you have put them on that type of regime that will help I mean yeah absolutely five minutes four times a day is like one of the best regimes you can have for walking when you've got a problem like this and um Yeah. And obviously then build from that. And you're absolutely right. It is a team effort and with the whole family getting involved. It does reduce the burden on the caregiver. And that is such a big thing because it's, it is hard work. It is hard work. Um, But obviously the best results are when you are all involved. So the the bigger team, the easier it is. Um, So yeah, well done. That sounds fantastic. And I'm thrilled that there was a good result at the end of it. And more importantly, the dog would have been thrilled and the family will have been thrilled. So yeah, well done. I'm thrilled mm. that you're on board with the physio and you're loving it. So that's that's amazing. And um, so I still want—I always like to ask as well—what uh, what part of being a vet still grosses you out? Because I just—I feel like you're going to say nothing. I'm hardcore because I've been travelled the world and seen everything. But there must be something that you thought bleh. <laughs>
1: Um. <laughs> well, I don't like cruelty to animals.
0: Of course, um, yeah. Um,
1: it's that really, that does upset me. And that you, you may recall, was it last year or maybe even the year before, that um, there was a young policeman who was killed near Oxford. He was dragged under a car by some travellers. Yes. Was and there was a big row about it. Um, anyway, the next Saturday, I had a call from the RSPCA to see if I would go to the sort of camp where these people lived, apparently. Oh. Um. um And so I went down there, and they had um, it was a puppy breeding outfit. They had a lot of dogs there, uh, French bulldogs. Um, They also had some fighting cocks there, uh, breeding. Um, And there were also a number of other animals which didn't fit in the picture at all. There was a young husky puppy there, has obviously been stolen. Um, There was a boxer there, which I think had also been stolen. The place was overrun with rats and things like that. But There was a degree of animal cruelty which was totally unnecessary, Um, and that sort of thing really does make me angry, because at at some point mankind will have to answer to our maker for the way that we've treated the animal kingdom. We really will. Um, I don't know when that will be, but um, it's time I think to take on board, you know, perhaps a different viewpoint. Having worked overseas, animals in this country are actually quite lucky because there is legislation here to protect them. And you know, nobody likes to have cosmetics and drugs and things tested on animals. You know, and I don't either. Um, but unless the law is changed, then that's what's going to happen. But I'd far rather they were tested on animals in Europe, where the animal welfare regulations are very high rather than other countries that I could mention where there are no regulations at all, and the animals suffer terribly. So I'm not in favor of animal testing at all, but given the choice, I would prefer that they were done somewhere like Europe or the States, where it is regulated, inspected, and if you fall short of the standards, then you're closed down
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and oh yeah i mean absolutely i think absolutely everybody who's watching will be thinking exactly the same that they can't handle it hate seeing it can't stand any rspca adverts and yeah and when you've been in this industry you've always seen way too much, way too much I always say, um, yeah. you know properly ptsd from the things you've seen in the past is just horrendous and you know but you're right we we are getting better but there is so much further to go and even when there are legislations they're often not good enough and then you know and again there's always the people that just don't care if there's legislation because they're doing their own thing like these people you were called to so it is awful i am heartened when i find out that there are countries that you think don't have legislation and then you find out they actually do Mm -hmm. that's quite nice but it is never policed or rarely policed so it's
1: rarely enforced and um you may or may not recall that when President Carter was president of the USA, one of the templates of his foreign policy was human rights. And so if you were a country that, um, you know, held your values and respected human rights and, uh, you know, followed the UN Charter and so on, then you were regarded as a friend of the states and had special trading facilities and so on. And if you weren't, you didn't. But no one has done the same for animal rights. Mm. No, no one point. has. Had, no government has come out and said, "Well, how do you treat your animals? Um, you know, do we really want to do business with you?" Um, mm. Nobody. And if you look around the governments of the world, there isn't one single politician who is a leader of a government who has a degree in any of the subjects of life sciences at all. Mm. Um, they're all career politicians with degrees in economics and God knows what. There isn't a single biologist who's president of anywhere who would say, hey guys, you know, we've got to protect our indigenous areas. And I mean, Costa Rica has a fantastic government in terms of conservation, um, but that's because conservation brings in money. Tourism is a massive, uh, you know, money spinner for Costa Rica, and quite rightly so, but they protect their areas very well. Um, and that very often, for some countries that I've worked in, like the Congo and places like that, that is the only reason why conservation is followed by the government is because they think it will bring in in money. Otherwise, they just simply don't care.
0: Well, Chris, you're going to have to get a UN veterinary chair, and you can stand for the UN and try to um, get the get the animals looked after. And it shouldn't even be funny because that sounds like mm. such an amazing thing, and especially with your world experience. And we had um, Danny chambers on um, a couple of months ago and he obviously has stood for trying to be an MP um, and he's a vet um and so yeah it would be amazing if we could get some like you say some people higher up that actually yeah. um, can make it there unfortunately he didn't quite make it um but I'm sure he'll keep trying um and that would be amazing because yeah, yeah be- so we need to get more veterinary there. You're absolutely right. And oh, I mean, you do feel like you had banging your head on a brick wall because you're forever signing petitions and you feel like that's the best you can do. Um, because you you know, you don't know what else to do. And so it's amazing when you hear people like you who obviously have a lot more experience and knowledge about what needs to happen to make these changes. So um I think all we can do is encourage people like you to go on Go and talk to the UN <laughs> and fix it for all of us. That would be absolutely amazing. Because yeah, well,
1: if, the, if the opportunity arises, I can promise you I will. But um, whether or not that happens, I I really don't know.
0: Well, we'll see what we can do. If anyone's watching and has any influence in all the right places, please uh, know that Chris will go and work for the UN. That would be amazing. So, um, what? Uh, this is a great question. So, what if if time and money was no object? What would be your dream achievement?
1: What, starting something from scratch, you mean?
0: Whatever you want it to be. <laughs> what would you love to do? What have you always had a burning desire in your heart to achieve?
1: If time and money were no object, um, I would set up a merchant trading bank and use the profits to protect the environment.
0: Oh, nice. So
1: we would use the greed of the human species to protect planet Earth. That
0: that's sounds amazing. And it if sounds, sounds like...
1: A lottery. That's what I would do
0: it does sound like you thought about that have you got a little plan in your head
1: it's been there for a while yeah
0: (laughs) right again anybody watching who's got the money to finance this idea talk to chris (laughs) because it sounds wonderful and absolutely any ideas that can come out that that help the environment i think would be absolutely Mm. amazing so yeah oh that's a really lovely goal i like that idea like that um And so if you could have a Facebook Live, like I'm doing with you now, with anybody, dead or alive, who would they be and why?
1: Well, I'd probably want to do it with, with, um, I can't remember his name now, um, Dawkins, um, who wrote The Selfish Gene. Um, He has explained, um, you know, he he was, uh, I think, professor of, public science or something at Oxford, Richard Dawkins, that's his name, Um, and he's the first person really to explain in very simple terms um, about evolution and the way that life on planet Earth has evolved and the way that we all interact with each other and in particular how things have have developed by chance Um, and with an explanation for pretty much everything that happens in the natural world in contrast to what Uh, some religions um, have uh, put forward, which is obviously the idea of creationism and this so on. Um, And so I admire him tremendously. I think he's done an awful lot of good work, um, Richard Dawkins. And I'm a firm adherent to Charles Darwin, some of those books behind me are are, are Darwin material. Um, And I used to know a a guy called um, Quentin Keynes, who was Charles Darwin's great nephew, who had a first edition of all time's books? Wow! Um, yeah, and um, he's dead now, unfortunately. But they they were sold at auction for Christie's for a, a lot of money. Um, so I, I think that he was probably one of the um, the great figures of that mankind has produced, um, because it has influenced our lives irreparably and the discovery yeah. of dna sort of backed it up so that really has has come full circle so no longer do we rely on superstition and belief we rely on scientific fact um and i think that has immeasurably improved the way that we live um the values that we hold and, and the way that we interact with with the environment
0: absolutely um, that's so amazing think,
1: you know, if you don't understand something then you won't respect it if you don't respect it you won't protect it um and it's very <laughs> true of all walks of life um so I, yeah if i were to have a, a facebook one-to-one with anyone it would probably be richard dawkins yeah i'd give him a good grilling and find out what makes him tick yeah and like me he's from kenya so oh, wow. yeah he spent his childhood in kenya apparently i discovered years years ago
0: yeah, I, I do love learning about people's um, mm. past and like, I mean, n- uh, not necessarily from the same. Yeah. You just pick things out from different places that you've been to, don't you? So I've, I have visited Darwin's house and I have to say a lot of the facts I learned there blew my mind completely. Mm. Um, how old his wife was when she popped out her last baby. Still unbelievable. Yeah. I can't even repeat it because I think it's so unreal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, but, uh, I watched the um, film Miss Potter just the other day. And, um, and there was also some facts in there about Beatrix Potter. And I was like, mind blown. It's, you know, some incredible people out there. And, uh, yeah, it, it's so interesting. Um, Barbara has also just jumped in to say uh, thank you very much. That was interesting. And stay healthy. So thank you, Barbara, for saying that. I, I think she's probably popping off now, oh, which is okay. fair enough. Oh, it's Switzerland, so you know, whole different timescale there.
1: <laughs> Quite late. Uh,
0: yes, exactly. Um, so I feel like we know so much about you now, so I don't know what else you can have, but I would love to ask, um, tell us something that people don't know about you.
1: <laughs> Awkward one. Um, people don't know about me.
0: Yeah, secret, nice juicy one. <laughs>
1: I actually stood for parliament once.
0: Oh wow.
1: Um, the um, I think it was when John Major was prime minister and or his term was coming to an end um, and there was a, it was a party that was um, formed online. It wasn't a you know Tory conservative anything like that. It was an online party funded by a millionaire. And they were looking for candidates for all sorts of different constituencies and I was working in a clinic um, near um, Cuffley at that point, And I was bored stiff. So I thought, well, I'll do this, you know, it can't be that difficult. So I put <laughs> my name down and said, I'll be a candidate for this constituency. And they said, wonderful, you know, and I had a big questionnaire to fill in about, you know, what were my views on, you know, pensions, the National Health Service and various other bits and pieces. And, and then I didn't really hear anything from them at all. I was never asked to sort of give any speeches or attend any hustings or anything. And then about 10 days before the election, proper, suddenly there was a flurry of emails that said we've had our market research people come back to us, and they think we're going to do really well in this election. And if we win the election, what position would you like? So I thought, well, that's, that's a pretty interesting question. Um, So I thought, well, if it's not, you know, too much trouble with you guys, I'd quite like to be Foreign Secretary. (laughs) Only in jest. So the see, I've sent this email off and And then I got a very non-committal response back saying, well, you know, thank you for your, you know, we'll certainly think about that one. And that was the last I ever heard of them. Uh, And um, I discovered after the election that I think I had got 14 votes. um, And the most successful candidate for this party had got 280. Um, So the the party was an absolute complete dead flop. I can't even remember the name of the party, I'm afraid. Um, But it was an interesting idea at the time, yeah.
0: It sounds like um that was an amazing mm. experience and how bizarre that you only got contacted because the market research people were yeah it I seems so so backwards to whole, um yeah, make a the decision
1: whole, like that how bizarre. Was a total cowboy outfit you know but it was it was quite fun to be part of i must confess yeah
0: well then that's the important bit isn't it and and if anyone could say politics is fun then well i think you've won there <laughs> Mm. um so Doreen has popped up and said what an amazing gentleman I was born and brought up in oh no I'm not gonna be able to pronounce that kit kitwa
1: kitwi
0: kitwi um Mm. and then a new lovely mobile that namely uh namely Paddy Davidson who cared for wildlife at, at and at his home there was often lion cubs um he would rear and the when the mother had died well done both of you oh thank you Doreen thank you so much for bringing that up that story that was really kind of you so uh, yeah and what a lovely compliment um so what's the most spontaneous thing you've ever done because I mean is that going to be the parliament thing as well <laughs> or is it, have you done something else
1: the most spontaneous thing mm. um blimey I once bought a marble company in Italy. What? Um, that's so random. Um, yeah. And they'd advertised for investors in the Financial Times. So I thought, well, that looks interesting. Um, I've always been a fan of Michelangelo and the Italian Renaissance. So um, I went down to Italy the next afternoon and, and bought a third of a marble company. That is mad. Um, hmm. <laughs> well, it
0: um, definitely ticks spontaneous. Well done.
1: Um, so that meant that I had to go to Italy four times a year and have the most enormous lunches with, with staff you know um, <laughs> I, used to, I used to starve myself for two days before I went because otherwise I'd I wouldn't be able to fit in the aircraft seat on the way home it was um out of this world but it was very it was a totally different way of life and, and quite interesting yeah in the Carrera mountains north of um north of Pisa Yeah. How
0: amazing. Well, that is very cool. It's been absolutely amazing learning about you and your life. And um, so I've just got one final question. So everybody, to give them a tip, what would be your top tip for dealing with pain?
1: Um, Do you mean physical pain or emotional pain?
0: Oh, let's go with either, whichever you want.
1: (laughs) Top tip for dealing with pain. Um, I think... Certainly in my experience, um, putting pain on a shelf and giving it a name is actually quite a useful um, way to handle it. If you're in pain because emotional pain, if you just give it a name and then you say, well, you know, Nesta's on the shelf at the moment. I'll, I'll come back to him tomorrow and have a chat with him. Um, that kind of separates it from your personality and you can get on with the rest of the day.
0: That's interesting. Uh,
1: or if you're in physical pain, then again you can sort of concentrate on the things that you are physically capable of doing um, before you get back to trying to heal yourself from you know whatever's you know causing physical pain. Um, and I know that that's what I, I mean. I've broken a lot of bones in my time, and and I, that's the system that I learned to use, and it has worked well. So. Hmm
0: that's fantastic that sounds like an amazing tip so i really like that so top tip for dealing with pain emotional Mm -hmm. physical give it a name pop it on the shelf Mm -hmm. i like that um Mm -hmm. joanne also said thank you and i'm also going to wrap this up now say thank you so much to everybody for watching you've been an amazing audience thank you so much for your amazing participation and thank you so much chris for joining me and having this interview i can't believe how incredibly interesting you have been and it's been wonderful to have you
1: Well, you're very kind. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cup of Tea with the Vet. If you want to hear it live and get involved, join us on our Facebook or YouTube channel, Animal Physiotherapy Limited. And if you can leave a review, please do. They really help and I read every single one. Thanks for listening.